The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm honored and delighted to welcome each of you today to join me and my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm to discuss the topic of H-1B litigation and the impact it could have on you, your business, your employees. So uh, let me briefly introduce my two esteemed colleagues. We have Adam Rosen, who has, I understand, just celebrated like 16 years at the Murthy Law Firm, uh, member and assistant managing attorney. I have Kevin Andrews, who's probably been with the firm close to that much time himself. Uh, Kevin, is it 15 years or thereabouts or somewhere in that range, right? Yeah, like 13 as a lawyer. 13 as a lawyer and four before that whilst going to law school. So, my God, we have, you yeah, know. Yeah, like 16 or 17 uh, Oh, my God. So, we, we have a bunch of years doing immigration law. And, of course, I hate to tell share my years or my decades because then you date yourself of being, you know, growing up there. How about this? Older and wiser. Uh, uh, we clearly have the creme de la creme in the country to explain immigration law issues. Adam is our resident litigation person at the Muthi Law Firm, and I know we all pick his brain and ideas when we need to discuss issues pertaining to litigation. So with that, Adam, let me invite you to just lay a little bit of the foundation and the background by way of introduction. Sure, Sheila, my pleasure. So to start off, the H-1B visa program is the focus of today's teleconference as it relates to litigation. And as you know, the H-1B program allows U.S. employers to temporarily hire foreign workers in specialty occupations, which are jobs that require highly specialized knowledge and a bachelor's degree or higher in a related field of study. Over the years, especially prior administrations, there was a steady increase in the number of H-1B denials, requests for evidence, and these denials historically didn't really turn or go anywhere, but increasingly as the number of denials increased, so did the number of lawsuits. Now, while non-litigation options like refiling a petition um, or filing a motion or an appeal is often the right option, this might not be enough. The problem is that motions or appeals will go back to USCIS, either the same officer or another office, the Administrative Appeals Office, that is still part of USCIS and applying USCIS policy. So as a, and a, as a part of USCIS that's responsible for making sure their decisions are consistent with agency-wide USCIS policy, filing that appeal to the AAO may just give USCIS the chance to better deny, prepare a better written denial decision than what the service center originally issued. Furthermore, even when the AAO upholds an appeal, they may not be approving the petition, but simply send it back to the service center to issue yet another request for evidence for more evidence before they eventually get to make a decision, which unfortunately might still be a denial. So the alternative, um, which many, which some of you may have, or many of you may have already taken advantage of, um, and there are certainly many employers out there who have, 
going to federal court instead of going to the route of filing the motion or appeal? Am I going to federal court to challenge via unreasonable and unlawful decision to hold USCIS responsible? This is what we call an Administrative Procedure Act lawsuit. Now, even with the possibility of challenging USCIS and making a um, challenge, challenging USCIS's decisions by making the choice to go to federal court, you have to have a decision on your case. But unfortunately, what is sometimes a problem, and maybe not often, but it does happen occasionally, where you're simply waiting for a decision on your case. And so that kind of lawsuit that you can turn to federal court to for help with is called a writ of mandamus, which for that, I'm going to turn, um, turn things over to Kevin, um, where you can talk a little bit about what is the writ of mandamus and, and how does it um, help someone with an H-1B petition? Yeah, thanks, Adam. Yeah, you're right. So like uh, with, with uh, USCIS, we'll see a lot of bad de decisions, denials, but often, especially lately, there are a lot of delays where a non-decision is what, you know, you're in this holding pattern of a perpetually pending petition. So uh, another valuable tool with that that's involved with litigation would be the writ of mandamus. So essentially, this is a type of lawsuit that would involve the court compelling the government to make a decision where there is a requirement that they make a decision within a reasonable amount of time. And what that term means is, is a strategic thing that Adam probably gets into a lot. But um, we don't see delays with H-1Bs as a common problem right now, but uh, mandamus would be a great option for cases H-4 and EADs, uh, 485 applications and a lot of other things that are tied up in long wait periods. So sometimes a really good option would be to uh, take a look at using writs of mandamus or WAMs as we call them as a way to compel the government to, to make a decision. So um, one of the elements to get a good writ of mandamus cases to show that uh, an ex this extraordinary remedy of having the court intercede and compel the government agency to take action is to show that the, that the um, it, this is an extraordinary remedy that that needs to be granted. That there are some compelling facts in the case. Uh, our special projects team and Adam with his litigation division definitely spent a lot of time looking at case by case uh, uh, facts to determine whether it's going to be a successful case. And you know sometimes the the wait time can is considered appropriate, although it doesn't make much sense from a common sense perspective within the framework of immigration law it's 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 it is considered reasonable, but a lot of other times it's it's unreasonable and Wong's writ of mandamus is a compelling uh tool in the toolbox to get something done. I think one of the main compelling circumstances is where you can show that there's going to be some kind of injury. And I think injury in the context of employment immigration law is like loss of employment or unlawful presence that's going to create a bigger problem of being subject to a three or 10 year bar from reentry back into the U.S. So it, 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 it's not always a requirement to contact USCIS directly or to go through a congressional inquiry or CIS ombudsman, some other tools that people might have heard of to uh, uh, take steps before filing the mandamus. But sometimes showing those um, attempts to exhaust those administrative remedies is a good strategy. So again, it's a case-by-case -case scenario. If you're stuck with a case that's just in a holding pattern, no matter how many follow-ups, uh, congressional inquiries, 
it might be something to take a look at with an attorney who has experience with mandamus lawsuits to see if that would be a good idea to move it forward. Oh, yeah. Well, in addition to that, I think what we're seeing a lot more commonly are like the lawsuits involving bad decisions. And I think we have a few examples of those uh, here, Sheila. Yes, wonderful. Thank you. So to jump into the next section, so we gave a little bit of background with Adam and then Kevin explained the risks of mendamus. And um, I'm going to talk about a few of the lawsuits against the USCIS for what employers or employees, generally employers as petitioners, would consider as improper, incorrect H-1B denials based on the statute, the regulations, their own policy guidance, what have you, right? So some of the cases that we've talked off, and I know I'm, uh, you know, one of the many proud legal advisors for IDServe Alliance, but they were very successful at the start of the pandemic in March of 2020 in the case, the settlement of that case called IDServe Alliance versus CISNA. Um, and since then, the USCIS almost never requests issues, RFEs, or requests for evidence on the petitioner or the employer, H-1B employer's rights to control the employee's work while working at a third-party location. And while we still see that U.S. consulates around the world may request this type of evidence when a, an individual uh, visa applicant, an H-1B visa applicant, may apply for the visa, for example, the USCIS no longer requests this type of information when they are processing H-1 petition, petitions. In the IT Serve Alliance versus Cisna case, the plaintiffs, the, all the many of the tech companies argued that USCIS was improperly interpreting the rules which govern the H-1B visa program and that the USCIS's decision-making process was both arbitrary and capricious and legal terms, a little bit of mumbo-jumbo for those who are not lawyers, but basically that it violates the statute, the law, the regulations. And as many employers may recall, USCIS was demanding back in the day, those days, contracts and letters at every level of the relationship connecting the H-1B petitioning employer to the end client. So the plaintiffs were very successful in winning a favorable ruling from the judge and ultimately, the case was finally concluded with the USCIS agreeing to withdraw its two policy memoranda that had actually created this entire problem, the H-1B control memo and the Trump-era memo that added to the documentation requirements of contracts and statements of work. So besides that case that we often refer to, and congratulations to everybody who was involved in that lawsuit, Next, we have the HCL America, Inc. versus USCIS. In that case, a multinational IT services company sued the USCIS over the denial of 50 H-1B petitions. The company HCL America basically argued that USCIS had improperly denied the petitions without providing a valid reason and that the denials were part of a broader pattern of discrimination against Indian IT companies. The case was settled out of court, and the USCIS agreed to reopen and reconsider the denied petition. So that was, again, really good news from the employer's perspective. 
The next case, the third case I want to discuss is Gopi Kandakuri versus USCIS, uh, another IT serve uh, leader. But in this 2019 case, Gopi Kandakuri, an Indian IT professional, sued the USCIS over the denial of his one extension application from one of his employees. He argued that the USCIS had improperly denied his petition on the basis that the job did not qualify as a specialty occupation. The case was, again, settled out of court with the USCIS agreeing to reopen and reconsider the H-1B extension petition. Fourth, we have Deloitte Consulting LLP versus Renaud. And this is a 2020 case where Deloitte sued the USCIS over the denial of H-1 petitions for 13 of their employees. The company, uh, Deloitte, basically argued that USCIS had improperly denied these petitions based on an overly restrictive interpretation of the definition of specialty occupation. That case appears to still be ongoing at this time. Unless, I guess, maybe Adam and um, will jump in if there's any updates. And then uh, fifth, I'm going to talk briefly about Kandikonda versus USCIS, another 2020 case where Prashanti Kandikonda, an Indian IT professional, um, sued the USCIS over the denial of the H-1B extension petition, arguing that the USCIS had improperly denied the, the petition based on an unreasonable interpretation of the rules governing the H-1B visa program. So again, it, everything depends on we all as employers taking, uh, taking a position and saying, I will not tolerate a violation of the policies. So I know the other really important case is Xterra Solutions versus USCIS, and I'm going to invite Adam to jump and discuss this 2019 case and put it into context as an Administrative Procedures Act or APA lawsuit, because all of these are based on the APA violations. So, Adam, take it away. Thank you, Sheila. So, Xterra Solutions uh, Inc. versus USCIS was filed to challenge USCIS's denial of the H-1B petition when USCIS said that the company had not demonstrated the job as a specialty occupation. And so, the company made their argument that the USCIS's uh, interpretation was being overly restrictive. Uh, the, some of the things that it looks like USCIS did in this particular case is similar to some of the things that were pointed out as problems in the IT Server Alliance case and other cases. Um, even after the company had gone through all four criteria, all four different ways to show that a job is a specialty occupation. And just for review, the it's first a bachelor's degree is in a related field of study is normally the entry requirement. Uh, the degree requirement is common to the industry in that kind of position or the employer can show its own job is so complex that it can only be performed by someone with a related bachelor's degree. The employer normally requires a degree for the position or the nature of the duties are so complex that the knowledge required to perform the job it comes from the degree. And so the complaint that they filed laid out for each of the four criteria why their position met it and the H-1B position should not have been denied. So after several months of negotiations, they ended up dismissing the case because they got what they were requesting, which is 
um, the decision reversed and the position approved. So these cases highlight the kinds of challenges you can bring under the Administrative Procedure Act, which is essentially like a tool to use in order to bring legal issues and legal problems involving U.S. immigration law in your H-1B petition. And so Thank you. this way, you know, it also helps because as an employer where you're, you know, you may be filing more than one H-1B petition, it also establishes the fact that you're willing to hold USCIS um, to, to account to make sure that the program is administered fairly and according to the law. Thank you so much, Adam. And so uh, this is really helpful to sort of go over a bunch of these cases. And next we can talk about the very exciting and interesting development, which I know impacts a lot of individuals, families, companies regarding the H-4 and L-2 EADs, the Employment Authorization or Work Authorization uh, privileges. So I'm going to invite uh, my esteemed colleague, Kevin, to jump right in. Thanks, Sheila. Yeah, so Etacuni v. Mayor uh, versus Mayorkas was an interesting case, and it's, it's probably the, the most impactful case to our world since IT Serve Alliance. You know, what's really interesting about those cases that you and Adam were kind of going through is that, um, you know, for the most part, they, the, the petitioner plaintiffs seem to have won and, and their pushback helped uh, force USCIS's hand. But the benefit really was limited to those plaintiffs. It didn't create policy. And so, you know, kind of, I mean, one kind of callous way of looking at it is like, well, fairness and justice is a pay-to-play kind of program. You know, you have to file the lawsuit if you want to get, uh, you know, fairness in your petitions. So it's kind of disconcerting. But on the same, you know, at the same token, cases like IT Serve Alliance and Adekuni v. Mayorkas have a broader impact that affect even non-plaintiffs. So what is this case? Um, as, as many people know, uh, when the H-4 EAD program first came out in 2015, uh, during the uh, Obama years, it, it was very common for USCIS to process the H-4 and EAD with, you know, like on the uh, coattails of the H-1B petition all at the same time. And H-4 and EAD processing delays increased dramatically under the previous administration. You know, there was like this uh, ideological interest in kind of rescinding the H-4 program, there was, you know, kind of a question, will that come up in the, uh, in the latest, latest Federal Register, a, a rule, proposed rule to get rid of the H-4 EAD program? And so what we saw during that time was dramatic delays, like year-plus delays on H-4 and EADs. Um, with, with the current administration, we still continue to see very long wait times, um, you know, maybe related to the pandemic and just overwhelmed capacity with processing, but still a lot of the same. And there was this lawsuit uh, that basically challenged the way USCIS was processing these and basically said, look, you, you, the government, have been processing these fast for, you know, the time that the program came into existence and then abruptly changed this policy. And I guess that would have been 2017 or 2018. And there was no real reason for this change. And that was basically the thruster challenge of the lawsuit. And USCIS settled that and agreed, hey, and not just for these plaintiffs, but for everyone starting January 25th, 2023, H-4 and EAD applications filed together with the H-1B, and then also L-2 uh, applications filed together with the L-1 will be processed together. Uh, I think the key there is that they have to be filed together with the H-1. That creates some other strategic 
you know, considerations like whether the H-1 had been extended recently and whether an amendment can be filed and whether the employer would be willing to do that. Um, but the alternative is, you know, to have the H-4 and EAD filed by itself. They're taking six to nine months to process even still. So this new option of being able to transition to H-4 and EAD or extend H-4 and EAD is um, certainly uh, a, a huge benefit, especially at a time when there's a you know increased uptick in, in layoffs, particularly in the IT sector. So this gives an added level of flexibility that I think a lot of people are looking for these days. Yeah, and in fact, at Moosey Law Firm, we have actually started seeing these approvals that are starting to come in um, just very recently because of this new change in policy from January 25th of 2023. Uh, these approvals for H4 EADs and L2 EADs coming in way faster than the pre where it would literally, like Kevin just explained, take months and months and months and months. So certainly worth, as you can see, as employers, employees, individuals, if you care about your life and the government's messing around with us, it is perfectly legitimate, proper, and legal to challenge them by filing the lawsuit to demand justice in your case. The next topic we're going to touch upon uh, is referred to as venue, uh, and just by briefly, you know, one of those requirements in every single lawsuit is that the court which has the closest nexus or filing uh, is where that has venue over the case, i.e. it's a legal requirement that the case is filed in a court or in a jurisdiction that has a reasonable connection with the dispute. And since we have our resident litigation person at the Multi Law Firm in Adam Rosen. I'm going to ask him to jump in and explain it a little more intelligently and brilliantly if he can. Thank you, Sheila. So very important, when you are challenging the denial of an h petition, there are several options that you can consider in deciding. Important question, where do you sue? So one option is the location of the file. If we're suing over an h petition, where is the USCIS office that's processing your case? Uh, another option is the location of the sponsoring employer. Uh, companies located in a particular site, particular geographic location, you can sue there. And so if you're going to decide to sue USCIS um, in that area, then the employer should definitely be the plaintiff. Um, another option is where the beneficiary is working or living. And if the employer is not interested in being the plaintiff, um, but the beneficiary will be, that might be a better location. The third option is um, available whether the beneficiary is already an employee of the company or dealing with a case where the HMB is a change of employer or a transfer case, um, then also doing it where the um, the sponsored worker is working or living. Um, now, the basic idea behind this concept and the limitations is that the case should be filed at a location that is quote-unquote convenient for the parties bringing the lawsuit. So even if the plaintiffs, let's say, wanted to pick Washington, D.C., which is something that has been historically very common, the, this requirement still is in place. And so um, the because the plaintiff, plaintiffs have to be able to connect with the court where the lawsuit is filed, where the injury is being suffered. And so um, if the lawsuit is filed in another place, uh, for example, now that USCIS headquarters is here in Maryland, then you must have something that ties that injury you suffered to Maryland. The local federal courts have been confronted with this issue involving the mandamus cases that we talked about, and the courts have rejected the idea that just having the agency's main office located here is enough of a connection. So what are some examples? Um, for example, if your case 
involves a challenge to a decision made by the Administrative Appeals Office, which is actually located in Maryland, so you could file the lawsuit in Maryland. If there's a policy that you're challenging, and it's a policy that is just across the board, and it's, since it comes from headquarters, then you can sue USCIS here in Maryland. Another example is when something's happening that there's no control um, held by the local USCIS office or service center, and the decisions are actually being made at headquarters, then you could sue here. So. What's an example? Um, a situation that sometimes comes up um, would be an exa good example is when it comes up with a permanent resident who wants to file an I-90 application for a replacement green card or uh, an I-751 petition to remove conditions from their green card. So USCIS will issue a receipt notice to extend the green card's validity in those cases while the, so while the LP LPR is waiting for their um, application or petition to be approved, and so they continue to work and travel. But usually the receipt is issued for a limited time to use with the card, and so when that time period is coming to an end, the green card holder is going to want a temporary stamp from the local office, but they have to call the USCIS 800 number to make that InfoPass appointment. But as we all know, getting through to an officer at all or someone who will actually schedule the appointment for you is not always possible. So what do you do and, and, who, and who do you sue? In our opinion, you would sue USCIS and here in Maryland because USCIS headquarters and not the local office is the one who made the decision to move InfoPass appointments to the 800 number and they made the decision on whether to give the appointment um, to the 800 number to decide and taking it out of the local office's hands. So since the one setting these rules and deciding how they apply is all coming from USCIS headquarters, they're located in Maryland, you can sue in Maryland. Now, for many years, mandamus lawsuits were being filed in the federal court located in DC because USCIS was headquartered there. However, as the government became overwhelmed with the number of cases being filed there, the attorneys for the government started asking the court to transfer those cases to another federal court that was more closely connected to the case. So while nowadays, USCIS has moved to Maryland, so the same principle, the same concept applies. Now, some cases can be filed still in the D.C. federal court. Um, the major example and something that we've, we've commonly done is a mandamus case over a delayed visa application. And so when the, the visa applicant, the beneficiary of, let's say, the H-1B petition, suing the Department of State is outside the United States, the lawsuit can generally be filed in Washington, D.C., if you have an H-1B denial, for example, that is for someone who is outside of the United States and you wanted to sue USCIS in Washington, D.C., this would be an appropriate reason um, to file the lawsuit in the D.C. federal court. There's probably a higher likelihood in that situation that the government might try to get it moved to another federal court because of how many cases are filed in D.C., but it's certainly not definite. And so those are um, some of the things to consider because if you don't think about this issue when you file the lawsuit, the government's decision to ask the court to move the case from one courthouse to another will cut into the timing on how things proceed in your case. Thank you, Adam. Um, as you can see, venue is a fairly complex and the government often uses that as a reason to want to throw a lawsuit out. So having a legal team or a lawyer that appreciate and understand all of the nuances dealing with litigation issues and the kinds of challenges the government will try to, um, you know, come up with uh, will certainly help you as you are planning your next move. 
So one of the other things that we've been seeing, obviously, over the years, but increasing uh, from time to time, is what happens when there is some type of a fraud finding that is made in the H-1B decision. Uh, it's an area that really should get more focus from employers. Sometimes the USCIS, for example, will issue a NOIR, a Notice of Intention to Revoke, or uh, a Notice of Intention um, uh, to, in a, if it's already approved, a deny, um, before if it's, when it's pending, when there's an extension file, for example, or a decision to revoke or deny a petition, et cetera, based on fraud. And in many cases, the USCIS will point to something either from the employer or the individual H-1B beneficiary or employee. Um, and what happens is if the employee has actually left the employer's employment or the, in, is no longer in the employment on the employee of that H-1B petitioner, the employer may think, well, I don't need to waste my time and money responding to this NOR uh, because the employee is no longer working for us. But this could be a mistake. And why? Because it's always important to challenge a fraud finding in, and in any H-1B decision because we would not know for sure what the effect might that that fraud determination by the USCIS or sometimes by the US consulate or CBP or whichever agency, but we're focusing on USCIS right now, of what that USCIS fraud finding may have on the employer, petitioner, company, either the, or the specific worker and all future H-1B employees for the company, right? So we have seen examples and instances where a person has filed for an H-1B visa at a U.S. consulate, consular post abroad. They've never worked for that employer before, but the consular officer will delay issuing the visa or actually may even deny it, asking for issuing a 221G, asking for more evidence because of some issue involving fraud, completely different employee or case but with that same employer. When an employer is faced with a fraud finding, one option that certainly exists for employers is referred to as a motion, um, to find a motion or an appeal to the AA or the Administrative Appeals Office. So many employers have not had a good experience either when they file the motions to reopen, reconsider, or the appeal with the AAO, yet, by filing the MTR, the motion to reopen, reconsider, could be helpful for you as an employer and for the employee because it provides the opportunity to share information with the USCIS, like giving them more evidence to reconsider. And most significantly, it's a way to get in new evidence into the record in the future for a court if you are planning to sue down the road. So when you file a lawsuit in federal court to challenge any action by the USCIS or any of the other governmental agencies that we've just referred to, you do not get to provide more evidence to show the court why the USCIS was wrong. So in this type of case, 
only the evidence with the USCIS before the final agency decision is considered by the court. So if there is something important that you would like to get in and you believe it will make a difference in getting an approval on your case, then filing that motion, the MTR, the motion to reopen, reconsider, or filing the AO, appeal with the AO will actually make a big difference. Uh, the law actually has particular steps that are required to go through before the USCIS or the federal agency is allowed to make a fraud finding that could potentially ban either the employer or the employee from enjoying immigration benefits. And we at the Murti Law Firm have had success in challenging fraud findings, as I said, with USCIS, with the US Department of State, at the consular post, with CBP, with the Customs and Border Protection, at the airports, the ports of entry, uh, um, you know, when they are made without giving proper reasons, or sometimes they say security-related reasons are made in secret to remove, to, to do what's called an expedited removal from the United States for a person who's attempting to enter the United States from an international trip, when the poor person has no clue why there is a fraud finding that is against that person made by some other different federal government agency. So as you can see, there's a lot of gray areas, nuances, tricks, complexities involved with litigation. So I'm going to invite my two esteemed colleagues, Adam and Kevin, to jump in and share any lessons learned or thoughts that they may have about litigation for you all as employers, as employees, and as individuals to consider. So first, I'm going to invite you, Adam. Sure, Sheila. So um, I would say that one of the things to take away at this point is that the lesson of recent years is that litigation can be a helpful course of action. And in our opinion, suing USCIS over a denial that you can clearly see is the wrong decision will often be the better way to go than a motion. The, the additional burdens created by the control and contract memos that USCIS has withdrawn are no longer tools that can be used against H-1B employers. And whether it's that coming up uh, to deny your case or a specialty occupation problem, they're not things that you should just take um, and move on to another petition. If a case, similarly, if a case is delayed and you have to try, you have tried to unstick it, and it's not wrong to turn to federal court to challenge the government's delay. Unfortunately, there may be some concern that USCIS has for why they're not deciding the petition. And while filing a mandamus lawsuit is only for a decision, you're not suing for an approval or denial, this may be the only way to get the petition unstuck. And especially if you've tried to move the case along with premium processing and that has failed, then the, the mandamus may be your um, only and best option. Thank you, Adam. Uh, Kevin, any thoughts that you have? Because I know we're always mindful to of the timing with respect to educating, empowering, enlightening our clients, employers, employees, but also making sure they have very helpful ideas or tips. Yeah, thanks, Sheila and Adam. Um, I, I, I guess I just want to echo one thing that Adam said, that you know, if, if you're getting a bad decision or a delay, that thinking about challenging the government with a lawsuit is, is something that should be at the, at the forefront of, uh, of your mind in, in terms of strategizing, that it shouldn't be an automatic no. And we understand that there's a cost to it and a calculus, and if you're a regular participa participant in immigration benefits, it might not just be about that case. It might be about something larger. And the only th other thing I would add to it is that 
Um, you know, as as you mentioned at the beginning of the call, I think all of us have been practicing for a long time over the course of several administrations. And while the statute really hasn't changed about what immigration law is, boy, these policies and memos and lawsuits and, and the re, you know, and the new administrations coming in really mean that the ground that we're operating on is constantly shifting. And that and what causes those shifts a lot of the times is litigation. And these lawsuits we've talked about are some of those examples. So I think just the theme of just not being afraid to try or at least to analyze the uh, option of filing a lawsuit when you're getting bad decisions or delayed decisions is worth thinking about. Thank you, Kevin. So as you can see, uh, there's so many nuances, so many issues uh, to consider. Uh, at the Murthy Law Firm, we would be happy to help you if you so decide to pursue litigation as an option or an MPR or an appeal or responding to a notice of intention to revoke, a notice of intention to deny, what have you. Uh, it's clearly, clearly uh, one of those things that uh, you really need to think through and make a decision to protect your company's name reputation in the long term, to protect and take care of your employees and their families and to ensure that we can uh, ensure that the government follows the U.S. Constitution, the laws, the regulations, their own policy memos, and don't contradict themselves. I know we could continue, but as always, we're sensitive to the time involved. And on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, on behalf of Adam Rosen, Kevin Andrews, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us for today's teleconference discussion. We look forward to continuing to educate you, illuminate you, enlighten you, and empower you as you deal with various issues, legal issues in the world of immigration. Thank you for joining us. Wishing you a happy spring, and we'll be in touch next month. Thank you, and take care. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.